I'm Chris Sheets, and I'm your host for the Celebrity Podcast, where we sit down with celebrities from the worlds of music, sports, TV, and movies to hear their stories about the pets they love. He was in Harper's arms the entire afternoon, just hanging out, eating all the, you know, the hors d'oeuvres and stuff like that. How cool is this? Charlie doesn't even realize he's in the Prime Minister's arms. The Celebrity Podcast, available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, January 14th. We begin with a conversation with Federal Minister Jim Carr, MP for Winnipeg South Centre, and the newly appointed Special Representative for the Prairies. We're talking to the Minister about what he sees as the greatest issues on the mind of Western Canadians. Next, we catch up with a political scientist from the U of C on what the next steps our nation should take in dealings with Iran. In terms of the Canadian victims of the Ukraine Airlines tragedy, and diplomacy moving forward. Then we're joined by cognitive psychologist Tracy Alloway. Dr. Alloway shares with us some interesting research on the effects social media can have on our brains. And finally, we hear from parenting expert Ann Douglas on why we should be sharing experiences with our children and not material things. 812 on the morning news. A Calgary-based company founded last year currently testing its own environmentally friendly extraction process that actually uses nanotechnology to uh, bring lithium out of brine water. Very interesting stuff. To tell us more, we're joined by Amanda Hall, CEO and co-founder of Summit Nanotech Corporation. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. How did this come to be? How did you get involved with this business? (laughs) Uh, So I'm from the mining and oil and gas sector in in Alberta. And in 2018, um, I had this crazy idea to leave the oil patch and instead uh, jump on the trend for lithium. Uh, the lithium marketplace looked like it was going to hockey stick a few years down the road. <laughs> and so I, uh, I decided to start a company, and I knew enough about resource extraction and about nanotechnology to put the two together and to try something kind of crazy. And so I entered a contest called Women in Clean Tech, and I won. And so suddenly I had the funds and the support to start a company and start developing this technology. Brilliant. So talk to us a little bit about lithium. What actually is it and how do you mine lithium? So lithium is a metal and it is actually formed from the runoff of volcanic erupt- eruption um, kind of rocks. And so it, it can be deposited in three different ways. One as a hard rock where it, it cools slowly and turns into a granite. And then the second way is it can deposit into clay formations. Um, and then the last way is it could stay in solution as water, as, as water, salt water, and then it gets buried deep under the ground into a salt water formation. And so that's the lithium we're going after. So you access it the same way you would access oil in the sense that you drill a well, you bring the fluid to surface, but then you have to take the lithium metal out of the water. And so that's where the nanotechnology comes into play. Where do we get our lithium from right now, Amanda? Um, right now, 60% of the lithium in the world comes from South America. And again, it, it comes from that brine saltwater formation. Um, but the, the rest of the lithium comes from Australia, mostly. And it's mined in a hard rock way over there. And they ship most of their lithium to China. Everybody ships most, most of their lithium to China, where it gets converted into a purer form of the lithium and then goes into batteries for battery manufacturing. 
Now, obviously, uh, many years ago, you got out of the oil and gas industry, I'm sure not realizing what was ahead, or maybe you did. But really, is this, you know, as you look at this lithium industry, could this be a way for Alberta to diversify then as, as we see so many changes in this province? Yes, I believe so. There are a few companies that are getting involved with this right now. The earliest adopter was E3 Metals, actually, and they actually went out and purchased land, land leases and started to map the resources of lithium that are in Alberta. And there's upwards of 3.6 million tons of lithium in this province. Um, the challenge going forward will be to access it economically. So our infrastructure is already in place in the sense that we already have our, a lot of wells drilled into these lithium-bearing formations. And then on the other side, we have disposal wells ready to go where we can put the waste product back underground. So there's, def- there's, definitely, um, there's definitely a possibility in Alberta, but we just have to make sure it gets done the right way, sustainably and economically. So you mentioned the infrastructure's in place. Sounds like the plan's in place. When do you think we could th- uh, see things up and running? Well, they're already testing a lot of oil, oil and gas wells to see what the lithium content is. Mm-hmm. And um, extraction technologies just have to catch up now. So I would say within a year, maybe a year and a half, we'll probably have our extraction process in the field running. And uh, some of my competitors may even be out there sooner. So it could happen fairly quickly as long as we can start making a business case for it. And how big could it be, Amanda? I mean, do you, do you see it potentially as a boom like we once saw in oil and gas? Uh, yes, I, I absolutely do, because the demand for lithium right now is about 300,000 tons per year. And with the growth of the electric vehicle market and with the growth of the renewable energy storage market, uh, they expect demand to be about 1.6 million uh, tons per year by 2030. So that's like multiple, multiple time growth in demand. And so we're going to need to keep up with that demand by mining lithium in different ways. So the the existing processes aren't efficient enough to get the lithium to market fast, uh, as fast as we need it. And so we're going to start looking for lithium in other places like, like like Alberta's oil. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Thank Mm -hmm. you very much for your time this morning, Amanda. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too. Amanda Hall is CEO and co-founder of Summit Nanotech Corporation. You can find out more about her company at summitnanotech.ca. It's 9.10 on the morning news. When you think of vending machines, you think of sugary snacks that may be overpriced. But what if you could grab a fresh-cooked meal with the tap of your credit card? Nutrameals has done exactly that, created fresh food vending machines. Joining us to tell us more about it is co-owner and co-founder of Nutrameals, Grace Clark. Good morning, Grace. Good morning. How are you? Good. Well, how did this idea come to be? So actually, my business partner did a semester abroad in, um, in Japan when he was studying at the University of Lethbridge. So he was in Japan, and in that culture, vending machines are everything. You can get whatever you want from a vending machine at any time of the day. Um, And so when he came back and we started thinking of this business model, we just knew that we would have to implement this here in in Calgary. It's a brilliant idea. And obviously, we're a little slow to catch on to it. But talk to us about what it looks like, Grace. How do you envision these vending machines to, is it cold food? Is it warm food? Yeah, so you're right. It is um, some new technology and it will take a while for people to kind of catch on to it. But the food in these kiosks are refrigerated. So it's 
It's essentially a giant fridge, um, and it will keep the food cold, um, and you just go up to the machine, and you'll tap your credit card, and it will vend. It will actually vend up to three meals per transaction, so it's not just a one-tap, one-product kind of purchase. So, um, yeah, that's a really cool feature about the machine. I would think that from your standpoint, it's more work than if I owned a regular vending machine with chips and pop and that I might have to check in every couple of weeks to make sure stock is, uh, you know, topped up, but I wouldn't worry about the chips going bad. How busy does that keep you? Right. So it's going to keep us quite busy. Um, We are fully prepared to be stocking these machines whenever uh, we sell out. Um, However, we will be, so our meals have a shelf life of five days. Um, And on the third day, we will be taking the meals out. Um, Whatever doesn't sell, we will take out. And then we are going to be redirecting and donating these leftover meals to a charity called Leftovers. And they are going to be freezing these meals and um, distributing distributing them to people who need them. So that's what we're going to be doing with the extras. But we're hoping that um, when people kind of catch on to this technology, that it will be selling out uh, regularly. Awesome. I would think that it would. You put it downtown when people just need to do something quick. So give us an, an idea of, you know, I'm, I'm just watching the video of your vending machines. It's in a little takeout container. Tell us what you suspect would be in there. Like how many different types of meals and what would they be? So we're going to keep that machine stocked with about six to eight different items. And we are totally open to um, adjusting our our meals based on what our customers want. So um, if customers downtown are really wanting more salads or quick things that they can grab and go and don't necessarily have access to a microwave for, we're fully prepared to stock that. As of right now, we have meals that range from vegetarian meals, chicken meals, turkey meals. Um, One of our really good and biggest hits is actually our taco bowl. People love that thing. Um, They rave about it. So we have those in the machine, but we're just going to keep testing the waters and see what people like and see what attracts more more people to purchase. So so that's kind of what you can expect in a container. And it's a full meal. Um, You're not going to be starving after it and um, you'll, you'll be satisfied for sure. Let's talk about price point, uh, Grace. Uh, what, what's a meal cost? So the average meal cost is around $11 right now, um, and that just includes um, the, the full meal and everything. So, But that's reasonable because, as you know, I'm looking at what you've got in there, and if you went to a fast food joint, first of all, it wouldn't nearly be as healthy, but healthy or otherwise, you're still paying about that much. This is just more about the convenience. Exactly. Absolutely. You're you're exactly right. And it's it's about the convenience and it's about creating um, a space where healthy meals and convenience can exist. And it's accessible by people um, 24-7, uh, 365, whenever the meals are stocked in that kiosk, people can access them and they don't have to wait in line. Um, be out of kind of out of luck when a, a store is closed and they can have access to these meals all the time. How many uh, vending machines are out there right now, and where are they located primarily? So we have two machines right now. Um, They are both downtown. One of them is at, uh, the address is 946th Avenue, and the second address is 1047th Avenue, both southwest. Um, They're about a block apart, so they're close together, but it gives us a good idea of what we can expect for purchasing um, and how people are going to kind of tag onto this technology. Grace, is your dream ultimately to have potentially these kind of vending machines in anybody's office, like we could have it here at our Chorus Central Building, 17th Ave, 33rd Street, and then all the employees have access to it, like that kind of a thing? 
Yeah, absolutely. And long-term dream is to have these kiosks all over Canada. We uh, were the first ones to have a fresh food vending machine um, of this nature with an app in Canada. So we really want to leverage that. And um, if we can get these kind of sprinkled sprinkled across everywhere, then then that would be a dream come true. You and your uh, co-owner, co-founder, Sam Hale, obviously those are the names we're hearing about now, but it must take more people as far as uh, food prep's concerned. So how many people do you employ and, and where does the food come from? So the food comes from wholesalers in Calgary. Um, we're leveraging them and we have a team of three people right now, um, five including Sam and I, but as we keep growing and growing that obviously will expand to kind of um, uh, meet that demand of filling these machines consistently and and whatnot. Can people go online and and tell you, hey, uh, Grace, we need a vending machine here? Yes, please do. (laughs) I would love that. I I really want to hear where people want these machines. And if you have people that we can get into contact with, we're 100 percent open to that. We want these machines all over the place. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Brilliant idea. Let's hope it takes off for you. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Grace Clark is one of the co-owners and founders of Nutrameals. You can look and uh, see video and tell her what you'd like to see in those vending machines online at Nutrameals.ca. And one texter writes in, they must have joined us in progress about 9.14, so a few minutes ago. What do they do uh, with what does not sell? And as Grace told us, there's a, a group called Leftovers. The Leftovers Foundation. They donate, mm-hmm. and, uh, so it does not go to waste. I think it's brilliant. Great idea. 709, we're learning more about the Ukrainian jet that went down last week, killing all on board, including 57 Canadians. A missile exploded next to the cockpit. There are now photos that have been released showing part of the aircraft blackened and pierced with small holes. Memorials were held right across our country this weekend. Our Prime Minister was in Edmonton. We'll talk in a moment about what he said. Meantime, Global News Europe Bureau Chief Crystal Gumansingh is in Kyiv, Ukraine, and filed this report this morning. There is a lot of work being done on multiple fronts in terms of the investigation into the Ukrainian plane crash. We are here in Kiev at the government offices, and I can tell you at this point, there are meetings taking place. We're hoping to get an update shortly as to what's happening on the ground in uh, Tehran. Now, we know that the Transportation Safety Board will have some experts arriving there today. There were several consulate officials who arrived in Iran earlier last week. More are expected to arrive today, about six in total. Of course, getting access to Iran has been a challenge for Canadians, getting visas that appears to be slowly working itself out. I can tell you that in terms of the investigation being led by the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine. They are working to reconstruct that plane. Officials here are also working on the criminal element. They're looking at to see what sort of information they can pull together to lay out any criminal acts that occurred in the deaths of the 11 Ukrainians. They were, of course, the, the flight crew for that airline that was leaving Tehran and coming back here to Kiev. The investigation, as I said, ongoing. We will continue to monitor all of the developments, not only here in Kiev, but in Iran as well. Of course, in Iran, there's also a serious situation going on with protests there. So we are keeping an eye on that as well. That is, of course, Crystal Gumansingh, uh, Europe Bureau Chief for Global News. Uh, this morning from Kiev, Ukraine, and uh, there will be a, a, an announcement at noon 
from the Canadian Transportation Safety Board uh, press conference updating us with the latest, and this is continuing. It is, and uh, joining us in this conversation, Executive Producer Mike Tarasco. Uh, we'll get to, in just a moment, uh, some audio that we'll play from Justin Trudeau mm-hmm. at a memorial in Edmonton, but also hearing that uh, demonstrators in Iran, they are defying the security there to protest uh, the the shooting down of this passenger plane. Yeah, they really are, and they're, they're trying to stand up and say, you know what, like, you're not our government anymore. Anymore. What you've done here, it's crossed a line, not like the government there hasn't crossed a line before, but they're finally standing up and saying, we, we can't do this anymore. Like, this is this is a big black mark on on our country, and, and you did this, and, and this is not good. So they are really standing up, but um, once again, Iran is, is responding to them and saying, oh, you can't do this, you're not allowed to protest And uh, we're hearing now this morning that, in fact, uh, the military and uh, police forces in Iran are firing on these protesters and and, uh, not just tear gas, but actual live rounds as well, according to some video that's going up on uh, social media sites. Thousands of protesters in the street right now. And here's a report from ABC's Megan Tezvizian. President Trump offering support to the Iranian people, tweeting in Farsi and in English, my administration will continue to stand with you and later sending a tweet aimed at the leaders in Iran. Do not kill your protesters. The world is watching. More importantly, the USA is watching. Turn your internet back on and let reporters roam free. Stop the killing of your great Iranian people. What a difference when they were, uh, you know, shouting down a death to the USA mm-hmm. a mere a week ago. And uh, more and more we're hearing analysts say, and I believe even on Rob Breckenridge's show, talking about the fact is you've got to get the people to be uh, you know, so upset. that that's how, you, that's how you do these changeovers. And this, is, this could be it. This could be the, uh, without uh, sounding gloom and doom, this could be the positive that comes out of this uh, situation. It's in true. And it's, it's almost making Donald Trump look like he kind of saw this coming and predicted that this would work out in, in the end. And, you know, I'm not necessarily a big fan of Donald Trump and all of his policies. But in this particular case, um, and maybe the, the plane being shot down can create some sort of turnover uh, in Iran that will end up being positive. Um, I don't think Mr. Trump wanted to see innocent civilians being shot out of no. the air, but if some positive can come of it, I guess that's a good thing. Um, Especially uh, with one of his own people coming out this weekend and saying, you know, they saw no evidence of true. Yeah. These, these imminent attacks that led to... Yeah, one of the people within the defense ministry in, in the United States say, we don't really know uh, where Donald Trump got the information from. Donald Trump has come out, of course, and said, look, the, he was going to attack four different embassies, the... Uh, Soleimani was going to attack four mm-hmm. different U.S. embassies, and, and that's why we had to take him out at the time that we did. Um, his defense minister was saying, well, I don't, not necessarily minister, sorry, but somebody within the defense... Uh, uh, the bureau the, there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, he was saying, look, yeah, we had suspicions that he could do this, but there was no actual hard evidence proving that it was eminent. And then meantime, closer to home, obviously, with 57 Canadians killed yep. in that crash. Memorials right across our country over the weekend, including one in Edmonton. And uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was there and he spoke and he's talking about compensation. I want to assure all families and all Canadians, we will not rest until there are answers. We will not rest until there is justice and accountability. Yeah, now that's that's a clip from yesterday. Earlier mm-hmm. on Saturday uh, in a press conference, Trudeau stood up and said, look, we are going to make sure that these families of these victims are compensated in some way, shape or form. And um, 
Again, it has been done before. It is yeah. possible. Not that that's going to change anything for the families who've lost their no, loved ones. No, it's not going to bring their, their family members no. back. But, but it, at least Iran needs to be held to account. It, it certainly does. And, and that's what that would say. And I give Justin Trudeau's props here. I think yeah. he's been very stately, if, if that's the mm-hmm. word that you want to describe him, throughout this, this tragedy, throughout what has happened here. And he's really standing up for Canada. And uh, again, you guys know I'm not a necessarily a huge fan of Trudeau, but it's it's possible to not necessarily like a politician, but, but like, like what, what they're, they're doing, doing Absolutely. at a certain time. And I think right now Trudeau is doing a good job. And not the only memorial. Uh, earlier on the weekend in Toronto, there was one. Hundreds of people turned out. A three-hour ceremony, Deputy uh, uh, Prime Minister Christian Freeland, uh, Premier Doug Ford, uh, Mayor John Tory on attendant, in attendance. So, you know, we are not going to forget these people uh, no. in any way. Having said that compensation piece, I think that that's a move in the right direction. Yeah, and lawyers say there are three avenues for family members to get financial compensation. It could be through civil action, through the International Court of Justice, or through international diplomacy. So the possibility is there. It's happened before, and the Prime Minister will be following up with that one. Yeah, and I guess it's just a a matter of seeing where he can go from here and uh, what gets done. A study out of University College London conducted a research on depression and suicide and found a startling link air pollution. The World Health Organization called dirty air the silent public health emergency. Here to speak to us is Dr. Isabel Braithwaite from the University College London, who led the study. Good morning, Dr. Braithwaite. Good morning. What prompted this research? We were interested really in trying to establish whether or not there is a connection between air pollution and our mental health, because we know that many of the physical health impacts of air pollution are very well studied and quite well established, things like you know asthma or heart attack, stroke. Increasingly, um, people have recognised that there's also an increased risk of dementia if you have um, exposure to high levels of air pollution. So that was really, I think, the thing that made us kind of start to wonder, actually, if air pollution is getting to the brain, if it's having effects on the brain, such as affecting dementia risk, could it also be affecting our mental health and issues like depression, anxiety, maybe suicide risk? So what we set out to do was to essentially review all of the scientific literature that had been published um, up to the point when we did the review, which was late 2017, and try and synthesize all of that kind of different evidence from different parts of the world and see if overall there was uh, a consistent picture emerging from that, um, that science. And tell us what you found. Is there a link between depression, suicide, mental health issues and pollution? So it, it certainly looks as though um, as though there is. We can't say for sure that it's a cause and effect link, um, and that's because you can't really experimentally expose people to more or less air pollution. So you're kind of limited in terms of the way that you can study that to just studying what's already there. But across the different studies that we looked at, so there were five different studies on depression and air pollution that we were able to pull together in what's called a meta-analysis. And there were four studies of suicide risk in relation to short-term changes in air pollution. And for the depression um, kind of question, when we pulled the studies together that looked at depression and air pollution, we seemed to find a kind of consistent link even though those studies had been adjusting for things like whether people lived in an urban area, their social economic status, their age, their BMI, and so on. Um, that obviously doesn't rule out the possibility that there's another explanation that's underlying that link that's being seen, but it certainly looks 
quite concerning that, that there could be um, a cause and effect relationship there. And I think, you know, there's a need for, for more research to try and confirm that. With respect to suicide, it's a slightly different uh, question that the researchers of those studies were asking, which is, does a short-term change in the air pollution people are exposed to, so of the order of a few days, does that increase their risk of um, dying by suicide sort of at the end of that short period compared to the same people at different points in time when they've had less air pollution around in the town or city where they live? Um, and again, that seemed, when we pulled together those, the results of those studies, that seemed to um, kind of hold that, that actually after periods of three more polluted days, you do see a slight increase in suicide rates, even after you've adjusted for, in this case, weather variables, day of the week, whether it's a bank holiday and time of the year. So um, that, I think, was quite surprising to us. What is the definition of toxic air and how does it vary around the globe? I'm assuming it's different in different parts of the world. Absolutely, yeah. So essentially there, there is no kind of one definition of what constitutes toxic air, but the, the definition that the WHO um, uses or what, what they recommend uh, countries try and work towards is uh, levels of what's called PM 2.5, so that's fine particulate air pollution, lower than 10 micrograms per meter cubed. Um, for reference, in London, the average is somewhere around sort of 14, 15, uh, and you know, in very polluted parts of the world, um, Beijing, perhaps, or India, you'd be talking about levels, about average levels over 100. Mm. Whilst in the cleanest cities in the world, you're talking about maybe six. Oh, wow. Huge variation around the world. Obviously, that's, that's massive. So what is it about this dirty air? What is it doing to us, to our bodies, to our brains that's causing the problem? In terms of, kind of mental health, I mean, it certainly is still quite a young um, and emerging area of research. So we don't 100% understand what might actually be underlying those links at, at a, a physiological level. Um, but what we can say from the research that is out there is that there are quite kind of quite plausible mechanisms that might explain the relationship that we saw with depression, for example. And most of those seem to relate to inflammation in the brain, what's called neuroinflammation. So the particles um, reach the brain because the very smallest particles can get right through to the alveoli um, where the gas exchange happens in the lungs. They cross that barrier in the lungs, they travel in the bloodstream, and then at the brain they're able to actually transfer across the, the blood-brain barrier um, and reach the brain. And the other way in which they can reach the brain is um, via the nerve that we use to smell, the olfactory nerve. So translocation across that nerve has also been found um, in animal studies. So, And then from there, seems to um, increase levels of inflammation and cause what's called oxidative stress, so kind of damage to cells because it's producing uh, harmful chemicals, essentially. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, Dr. Braithwaite. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Isabel Braithwaite is a clinical fellow and public health doctor, University College London. Thanks for listening to the Morning News Podcast. Make sure you don't miss any of the latest news from around Calgary by subscribing to the Morning News Podcast. And if you like the show, take a minute and give us a rating. See you tomorrow on the Morning News.